Hello and welcome to today's TIFO football podcast. The TIFO football podcast is supported by The Athletic. Now, The Athletic is the home of the best coverage of your club by a world-class team of writers, including many of your favourites from across the Premier League. Get reading now with a 30-day free trial by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And if you sign up before the end of August, you get 50% off your annual subscription. Do you know how much that works out to be per day, Alex? About 8p. 8p. £2.49 a month for the good stuff. Yeah? Today's episode is an interesting one. We had Declan Ahern and Bryn Anderson in from Brand Finance. Brand Finance published uh, an annual report called The Football 50. And uh, for the first year ever, they've released an annual as well, which we will show you in the main bit of the episode. Oh, Alex is trying to lift it up to show people now. Um, but he can't because he's taking too long to do it. Uh, it's lovely. It's like a nice coffee book. But essentially, uh, within the annual, within the report, there are two distinct league tables. The first is brand value. The second is brand strength. Now, don't worry. We didn't understand them either. But Declan and Bryn explained the difference to us and uh, where the clubs rank. He's lifting it up there. You can hear. Uh, if you're watching, you'll be able to see. Um, and we talk in this episode about... Manchester United, because they are featuring the top five of both, but in different positions. We talk about Real Madrid, who are now number one in both of those leagues. We also talk about a few interesting things. For example, uh, fans from emerging markets are looking for things like style of play when they choose a club, which is very interesting. And of course, the idea that we've talked about before, that some people are following players a little bit more than they are clubs. Uh, but it was a delight to have Bryn and Declan in to uh, explain all of this to us. And um, yeah, well, without further ado, here is the episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, Bryn, welcome. Thank you for having me. Declan, thank you for coming. Thank you. How are you guys doing? Okay? Yeah, good, good. Very Great. busy with the launch of the new book. But yeah. Yes, very good. In fact, we have the book here for people watching. Yeah. Alex can display it in one of the many cameras. Oh, yes, you've chosen the rubbish one. That's good. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it looks nice. Uh, so you guys are from Brand Finance. Will you first just tell us a little bit about yourselves and about the company, what it is that you do that uh, specifically relates to football? Sure. So yeah, as you say, we're from a company called Brand Finance. Um, we're a consultancy and we help, um, we help marketing um, and brand professionals understand their brands and help them unlock the equity and the value um, potential in their brands to help inform marketing and strategic decision making, ultimately to drive shareholder or economic value for their organisation. And uh, you've got this book here that you've published. This is the first time you've done it in this style, isn't it, in the coffee book, right? It is. It is. So we've been valuing the most valuable football club brands for probably about 10, 11 years now, mm. um, producing reports off the back of that study. This year, we've launched our inaugural annual. So we've put together all of our content, interesting analysis, rankings, in the form of a, an annual, which is available on Amazon now. Mm. And what is it called? The Football Fifty still? Is it? It's the, no. Well, our report is typically called the Brand Finance Football Fifty. Yep. This is the Brand Finance Annual Twenty Nineteen. Okay. Lovely. Look at that. Who's number one, Alex? Uh, yeah, so the most valuable brand is Real Madrid, and the strongest brand is Real Madrid. But there is some interesting difference in the top five and top ten of 
valuable versus strength of brand. Mm. We might come on to that a bit, bit later because there are a couple of clubs, Arsenal and Man United from memory are clubs that have dropped in both categories as well. So maybe we can talk about that and a bit about why. Declan, will you explain to me how this works? Because I think for me anyway, the idea of valuing a company, I think even for anyone who has a small business, it's a minefield. It's very complicated. I don't understand how it works. Can you just explain, just generally speaking, how you value a company? And we'll come on to the difference between brand value and brand strength. Sure. So um, I think the first distinction to make um, is that our valuation tables here with, within this report and this annual are actually valuing the brand, so not, not the enterprise. We do do enterprise valuations, which are published in the book as well, but the primary piece is, is around brand valuation. And we view football brands just like any other asset, um, like your house, for example, it needs to be invested in, looked after, and nurtured. Um, its value needs to be be measured, um, returns against that investment need to be measured. So we typically use what's called a royalty relief methodology. Um, essentially when you license a brand or, or any form of IP, it's typically done using a royalty rate on, on top line revenues. So we take a royalty rate and we calculate a royalty rate specific for a club. And that is where the brand strength comes in, which we'll touch on a little bit later. What is a royalty rate? So a royalty rate Essentially, in, in a commercial agreement, if you are using someone else's IP or, or assets and you're borrowing it, essentially taking ownership of that for a short period of time, you pay that person, that owner, a percentage of revenues that you generate. The idea being that you're generating revenue because you're using that IP or in this case, that brand. If Man United license out their brand to an apparel manufacturer, um, Adidas, for example, you can actually view those, those fees that Adidas pay, pay to sponsor Man United almost as a royalty agreement because they are selling Adidas t-shirts on the back of a Man United logo being on it. And this is the difference, isn't it? Because people often talk about uh, shirt sales when it's the transfer window and fans are discussing new players coming and the rest of it. But am I right in thinking that that's almost besides the point because the main the main thrust of the income for a club is going to be the the royalty rate, that, as, as you said, the example there, Manchester United to, to Adidas, more so than the actual shirt sales. Correct. So... Essentially, for, for Manchester United and other football clubs, there are, are three streams of revenue. Um, so you get your match day revenue, match day income, ticket sales typically. You get your broadcasting, so uh, that's TV rights and, and media, for example. And then you get commercial revenue. And that is where those sponsorship agreements come in. Essentially, your and transfer revenues. And, and transfer revenues. Essentially, your, your Adidas's of the world, your Nikes of the world, your commercial sponsors, they are willing to pay these clubs huge sums of money on the premise that you know their return will be higher than than that payout. So Adidas envisioned selling more Manchester United apparel and shirts and associated uh, apparel with Man United than the amount that they're paying them annually in uh, sponsorship fees. In terms of, I mean, obviously the landscape shift has significantly, particularly since Sky came in and the the Premier League era with the, the broadcasting deals there. And significant broadcasting deals recently, but what match day revenue is, is the smallest proportion of these things. In the last two or three years, how much has the difference been in kind of commercial revenue versus broadcasting revenue? Are clubs, are clubs making most money out of broadcasting? Are they making most out of commercial? Are there some clubs that specifically hammer Manchester United being an example hammer the the commercial side and that actually outstrips broadcasting yeah I think was three key commercial juggernauts effectively Manchester United Real Madrid 
Barcelona, and you could probably throw in um, uh, Bayern Munich as well. Take Real Madrid, number one. I think their commercial income is half of all the revenue that that club produces. Yeah. Um, you know, one can't forget that the broad, the, their share, although at a greater proportion of, uh, of the La Liga um, broadcasting revenues, is, is significant. Obviously not as significant as what you're getting in the Premier League. They're getting quite a large um, broadcasting um, uh, income, but commercial is completely outweighing it. It's 50%. Just, you know, look, look, look at the growth and in the profile of that club, not only in Western Europe, but in the new emerging football markets as well and the players that they're able to attract. In, in terms of broadcasting rights, I know recently in the news there's been La Liga's broadcast rights in the UK still, I think, at the point of recording the podcast, haven't actually been successfully sold. When you look at, at clubs and their broadcast rights revenue, is that just the broadcast rights for the domestic league in the country of origin? Or does it take into account... So, for example, if La Liga's broadcast rights in the UK, does Real Madrid see any of that money? Or does it just see La Liga being broadcast in Spain? Well, Dick, it's, it's the full... It's yeah, the full it's, it's, it's the full allocation. Um, typically, what what we're seeing at the moment, um, La Liga only only recently did this three or four years ago. Um, you know, consolidated all the clubs under La Liga as an organisation to negotiate these these fees on on behalf of the clubs. La Liga take a, a small portion of to, a pop to cover all of their costs and then distribute all of that revenue throughout the the clubs within La Liga. Uh, as Bryn alluded to earlier, the distribution between that revenue is a, a lot more unfair in, in La Liga than it is in the Premier League. The Premier League distribution of revenue is, is a lot fairer. And I think you kind of see that reflection in, in the strength of the teams in the Premier League and, and the depth to which the Premier League has versus its, its European counterparts. And what's interesting, talking about commercial uh, valuation as well, I suppose we've done, we've done a fair few finance videos in the past, so people who watch the channel will be familiar with the, the three different revenue streams that we've talked about already. What's always interested me is that you know, I suppose match day years ago used to be the most important for a club, particularly with the Premier League. We don't see that quite as much now, although there is still a distinction with the top clubs. It's the same reason for the reason that Tottenham spend so much money on their new stadium or it's important for West Ham to move into the, the London stadium. Um, broadcasting is obviously absolutely enormous now because of the Premier League's massive juggernaut deal, although it's worth noting that it has slightly dropped in the last, mm, the last one, hasn't it? Yeah. Although that's just for domestic, isn't it? It's not for, I think the just foreign rights went up. Domestic bit, foreign is going, is going up, yeah. 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 But it seems now, particularly if you're in the top six, the most important, the most important place for growth is commercial, right? Do you, th- I mean, how do we see that? manifested in the market what what are clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool for example doing to try and get the edge on their competitors beyond the normal shirt sales as an example and what what else of those things comes into your guys valuation of their brand you know I think the first thing to recognize is that these clubs these Manchester United these Liverpools you know they are are now global iconic brands um, recognized the world over and it's not a case of localization of football support anymore by any means uh it's funny you kind of see that archaic rule of not being able to to televise premiership games on you know midday on a saturday thinking that no one's going to fill out a stadium but the reality is all those stadiums would be filled out filled out either way and millions of more people are tuning in you know watching the, the games live all over the world and to the to that effect these clubs you know you see all of these pre-season tours overseas um they're trying to tap that emotional connection into all of these foreign markets. You see 
Manchester United going to, to China and then going to America and then going to the Nordics all in one preseason tour. Take Wolves, look at Wolves this year. What an incredible preseason! Incredible preseason. Wolves had, you know, they got Chinese sponsorship, Chinese investors. So, um, yeah, they've had a great preseason. Just creating that emotional connection with the with the fans out in China, growing the fan base. And of course, as Declan says, as you grow your fan base in these new football um, uh, emerging football markets where fans seem to be. Um, just lapping up and consuming football in many, many ways, then you're obviously attracting a greater number of sponsors and different types of sponsors, sponsors looking to, you know, go into um, new and exciting markets. So can I ask, we've we touched on it here because we're talking about fans and we're, talk, you know, you said about pre-season tours, part of the aim is to try and strengthen the emotional connection between fans and clubs. I remember we worked with you guys to make a, a, a video when you first released the report. It was about Real Madrid and, and Manchester United swapping places at the, at the top of the, of the valuations. And there is a distinction, as we said, between brand value and brand strength. That's mm. right. But I, if I remember rightly, part of the wording that we used uh, was I think it's for brand strength is that part of the way to value that is by working out how the club sits within the hearts and minds of the fans how on earth do you how do you work that mm. out that's you know even when we were making the video I was thinking god that's that that is that is complicated so how do you how do you work that out essentially the brand strength is is a combination of a range of metrics all weighted together to come out to one score out of 100 Essentially, we are looking at, at a brand as an investor would look at it. Uh, so if you're investing in, in a brand, you want to see that the brand itself has been invested in. And how do football clubs do that? They invest in squad value, they marketing expenditure, they invest in, in reach in terms of social media platforms and breadth and depth of their connection with, with uh, football fans in the hope that that translates into a higher brand equity. And that brand equity kind of captures that hearts and minds element and we essentially go and do our own proprietary research in emerging football markets such as China, the US and India, as well as more established markets in the likes of Europe. We look at a range of, of data partners as well, um, look at the heritage of the club, the history of the club, and all of that, a higher element of brand equity should in theory convert to brand performance. And brand performance, we are looking at things like trophies, revenue generated, profit generated by the club, might be a little bit controversial here, but I think football fans sometimes fail to realize that, you know, these clubs are commercial businesses with, with owners who often have a, a, the commerciality of the club in mind. You know, they want, they want to make high revenues, they want to make higher profits and get a return on their investment. And I think, you know, that irks football fans around the world, but I think that is part of the reality of the modern game. In terms of these, obviously within your um your report, you compare football clubs as brands among themselves. But if we're looking at everything you're talking about, and you've said several times that, you know, we, we think of these things now as brands in the same way you'd think of any other brand. So how, how would Manchester United, for example, stack up against someone like, I don't know, Apple or GlaxoSmithKline or... Tesco. Tesco, it's for example, pr probably more in terms of, of brand strength rather than brand value, because obviously mm. Apple's going to obliterate even big clubs. But in terms of recognisability and emotional connection, do, are, are football clubs ahead of that sort of thing or are they, where well, do they sit? 
Yeah, well, I think the first thing, when, we look, when we're looking um, at the strengths of any particular brand and we're doing the assessment that Declan alluded to, we, we are looking on a sector-by-sector basis. So we're, you know, we're benchmarking these brands against their peers. Um, but whether it's a retail brand that you mentioned or a tech brand or a football club brand, there will always be the stars at the top. There'll always be your AAA brands, you know, your 90 um, score index um, brands. There'll always be brands at the bottom. Um, and that's true with football. So you've got the Real Madrid, you've got Manchester United, AAA brands, and you're, you know, Apple's AAA plus in the tech sector. The one thing I would say, though, um, to answer your second point is in football, I don't think there's many sectors or many um, events like sport to really capture the emotional connection of the fan or the consumer. I think Apple's probably done it, um, is sort of the exception, um, not the rule in tech. You know, it's got a, a really strong, emotionally connected um, customer base. But in, in sport, there's, there's nothing quite like that in terms of tr- attracting the I mean, emotional engagement. Like it's a religion, it's tribal, one, yeah. um, particularly in Western Europe. But from the, through our research, we're increasingly seeing that in the um, emerging football markets as well. Where and, and are you seeing that with Western clubs, but with fan right. bases? And so how, how does that work? Do you think the kind of emotional connection, if the, if the fans are far from the club, the origin of the club, or maybe don't get to attend the stadium very often, don't get as many opportunities to see the players? How do you see that working? Well, we know through our research, you know, when we, you're, you're talking before about how do you get that emotional connection, there, there are things that fans look to particular leagues and particular clubs for, you know, whether it's the, the atmosphere that the club or the league is able to generate, you know, there's real buzz moments to make them feel good. There's the, you know, the star quality of the team. Are they attracting the, the top, the Pogba's, are they attracting the Christian Eriksen's and so on? Um, there's the style of play. All those sorts of things. And we're particularly finding that, you know, we did research in India, the USA and China, and that's what, they, that's, that's, what they're lo- that's what they're looking for. So we're seeing huge numbers of fans across the, you know, the, the typical top four or five clubs mm. it's for a those sort of, reasons. It's like a new route in as well. I mean, and I, for example, my, my dad was a Manchester United fan. He came f- over from Ireland and picked the club, I guess, in the same way that people from, from outside of England might do the same thing. But in a way of speaking, it kind of is... It, not so new, I suppose, but a more modern way of choosing a football club as well. You kind of, you assume that you will inherit one from mm. either the area that you live in or from one of your parents, whoever they supported. But it's interesting to hear that they are picking those things. W- one other thing that, that we, we talked about recently, I think in a video a few months ago, was the idea that player power is, is increasing as it relates to club power as well. And that we see new fans for Juventus maybe when Christian, mm. uh, Cristiano Ronaldo joins. Do you see that in your research as well? Do you see that, that, that people in emerging markets are more likely to follow a player than a club? Yeah, we are so, seeing that, yeah. Yeah, so I think um, what we typically see in the research is that fans in those localized markets will pick their local team as their, their primary team, but then their secondary team will always be you know, one of the big European teams, Manchester United, the, the Barcelonas. Um, and because there's no close affiliation in terms of the passion that you'd feel for a localized club, say, you know, being born and bred in Manchester, for example, a lot of fans do switch allegiances with, with favorite players and the likes of your Cristiano Ronaldo's, the Paul Pogba's on social media, for example, they actually have bigger presence than the clubs that they play for. I think Pogba's got, I think 20 million more followers on Instagram than, than Man United, for example. So these players in their own rights have their own world-class strong brands that, that naturally attracts kind of a following all over the world. 
Probably one much. of the primary reasons of Edward Woodward's trying to retain Pogba, you know, the commercial value that the player brings to the club. It, it, I mean, would it be fair to say on that basis that actually, say, for example, when Lionel Messi retires from football and presumably at Barcelona, unless he goes back to Argentina, which is a possibility, I think he said, but is, is that actually sufficiently sizable to affect Barcelona's brand value? Him, him not being there anymore? Yeah, I, I, I think one thing we can't forget is the relationship between on-field performance and the off-field performance of a club. You know, when, when a club is, you know, winning its league, winning the Champions League, winning all, all the cups, you know, everyone wants a piece of it. So there is, there is that relationship. Um, take Manchester United, um, for instance, although commercially it's still really doing well. You know, it's on-field performance and the, the the result of its brand value this year, mm. they're related. Well, this is what we were going to come on to this. And I, I wanted to ask you about it because we've seen them drop in, in, in both categories of brand value and, and brand strength. H- how How is it related to what happens on field and what kind of impact does that have commercially, which sees them drop down in, 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 in your guys' charts? Yeah, Deck will be able to give you a number of points, but I just want to bring up one. One thing we did see was style of play. Now, we know that Manchester United under Ferguson had a very distinct and renowned style of play that was attracting a lot of fans, you know, locally and internationally to Manchester United. It had a, the Manchester United way, which I think one could argue that, you know, that style of play sort of differed um, when um, following um, Ferguson. So that is, you know, one of the sort of core brand equity drivers amongst others. You know, from our research, we're seeing drop-offs, and there were there were others. There were others as well. Is that like unrelated to players' style of style of play? So unrelated to the players who are actually playing that way, because that's really that's really interesting to hear that people are choosing for the type of football rather With, than uh, for it's, the players. It's also it's fascinating because that was when Roman Abramovich took over at Chelsea. That was always one of the things he wanted to do was introduce attractive football yeah, and attacking exactly. football. Yeah, and it you can. You can see that as having a football rationale because yeah. it makes sense to try and win games in a certain sort of way with a certain strength of player. But if you're tying it in as well to how clubs are performing, you, you can you can actually see football clubs in the future potentially looking to attract a certain type of manager because not because they're successful, but because they play a particular brand of football which is attractive and exciting and that generates enthusiasm elsewhere, which is a fascinating point. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Yeah, as long as the results are coming, because you know sometimes yeah, sure. you know it's a results-based business. I mean, it's it's a funny one though, because I, you know I think to to take use the example again of my dad watching Manchester United. One of the reasons was George Best, and I don't know if you could describe. I mean, George Best had a style, but I don't think it reflected Man United's style of play more generally. So I, I you know, it's an it's an interesting new thing to hear. I understand people following a particular player because they're exceptional like George Best was and having a massive impact on the team but the idea that they're choosing clubs because of the overall style that's that also does that not suggest football fans are know a lot more about the game maybe more intelligent about football nowadays if they're thinking in those terms as well and I think it's 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 not just the football fans but as a corporate sponsor you know you'd you'd rather be associated with you know dare I say an Alex Ferguson Manchester United that's kind of attacking and always hopeful then Jose Mourinho's Man United that's slightly more defensive and 
Does that mean Tony Pulis is never going to get another job? <laughs> I hope not. That'd be a shame, wouldn't it? Yeah. I'd love my company to be associated with long ball play. I Although think, I did yeah. notice in, in this report, which I read a little bit of beforehand, you said that Burnley is still very attractive to sponsors, which, <laughs> given how Sean Dyche plays football... They stand is, out, though, don't they? They're, they're kind of against, I'm, I'm against the grain. Would you see that at all? Regional. Local yeah, regional sponsors. If, for example, though you have, I mean, Burnley's. This is a hypothetical. Maybe, maybe we don't have an answer to this. But Burnley, for example, they sort of um, nowadays they're against the grain in the way that they play. But they their brand as it relates to that is actually very strong mm. in the league. Like people know them for that more yeah. than they do other clubs. This is Tony Pulis was a good example of that with Stoke as well. Yeah. Does does that help even if it's not the right style of play? If they're known for that sort of. It has a character to it, doesn't it? Well, I, I, I think any brand that can identify itself with a with a distinct personality, yeah, yeah it lends itself towards sponsors. Whether, like Dex said, if it's a, a, a club that, or a brand that plays an exciting type of um, football, in in this case, there'll be particular types of sponsors that attract to it. So Burnley, in Burnley's case, it has an identity, and there will be particular corporate brands that identify in the same way, and it becomes quite a, a, a nice proposition. Yeah, and they, I mean, they're almost like you know, the underdog, if you will, always punching above their weight. Um, and that in itself is attractive to, to sponsors and, and fans alike. This was a few years ago. I don't know if you can remember off the top of your head, but when Leicester won the Premier League, what kind of impact did that have on, on their brand value? Was it as big as one would expect? Was it, was it less than that maybe? I mean, I suppose they've, you know, fallen off. They're not in, finishing in the top six now, but do, do, was there a particular jump at that point? Yeah, they did jump massively. I'm just trying to recall whether they were uh, the fastest growing or the second fastest growing in, in that year of the, of the valuations. Well, I mean, they qualified, right, for yeah. Champions so League. The, the, the Champions League, the windfall from additional revenue from just playing in the Champions League, I think doubled their revenue, if, if not more, <laughs> okay. in, in one year. Um, and then naturally their brand strength went up as well. They got a huge amount more exposure. I think just the, the story and the manner in which they won the league as well contributed to to you know that kind of identification of their brand and and people wanting to get behind that as well and the increase just just in Champions League revenues alone never mind kind of the commercial side of it it as well had a huge impact on on their brand value Alex you said before that there was uh, some interesting uh, differences between the two different charts yeah would you be able to uh, explain what you meant by that and maybe we can ask uh, ask Declan and So if you look at the top so we'll take the top five most valuable brands. They are in descending order, Real Madrid. Manchester. Incidentally, people can see this on your website as well in the report form, can't they? Okay. If they want to have a look at it while, while they're listening to yeah, you talk. Yeah, it at www.brandfinance.com. It'll be on there. Um, yeah, so most valuable brands, top five in descending order, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Barcelona, Bayern Munich and Manchester City. In terms of the strongest brands... Real Madrid is also the strongest, but then Barcelona, uh, then Bayern Munich, Manchester United is down in fourth, and Liverpool are up in fifth. So they're not they're not massive differences, but they are. So the biggest difference there is United's position in the top five of both, right? Yes. And how, how would you explain the, the the difference in position there? Well, just to step away from football, if if I may, just to explain this, that one way of thinking about this, if you, if you just take Ferrari for instance, one of you know everyone knows Ferrari, it's it's probably the strongest automotive brand there is. But when we're thinking about absolute value, um, it's not the most valuable automotive brand. You got you know, got Toyota, you got Nissan, and it's a function of Ferrari. Although they are strong, 
in terms of their fundamentals, revenue, profitability, you know, they're, they're not as big an organization or a company or P&L as some of those other um, organizations. So if we were to move on to football, for instance, I think um, you picked up on Manchester United. It's higher in brand value. I think it's um, third versus it's um, brand equity. That's because, you know, it's still a commercial juggernaut. Its fundamentals are real, really strong, still strong. Um, however, within the space of a year, we saw its sort of brand strength, the, how it's sort of perceived in the hearts of minds or as an investor in, in, in football brands. It's sort of gone back um, a few places. And this might be a difficult question to answer, but let's say hypothetically... Because for supporters of Manchester United particularly, I think this is a, an interesting question. They, they, they're, they're clued up about Edward Wood and the Glazers. They know about mm. the situation. They know it's a, it's a commercial juggernaut, as we describe it. But they also know that the football isn't what it once was. And they mm. you know, haven't been finishing in the top four. Mm. How much longer would you imagine that they would have to finish outside of the top four for, that, for their position to start dropping off maybe more significantly than it, than it has done? Because... Can can this last forever? Can they continue to be the commercial juggernaut in the way they are without finishing in the top four or without winning trophies? And if I can chuck in an additional but related, how quickly does a decline in brand equity start to create a decline in brand value? A few very good points there. Um, and just to jump on that last point, you know, we believe brands should be building for the long term. Um, so, you know, the stronger and more rooted your brand equity is, the more um, stable it is and resilient it is to to external changes and shocks. So Liverpool, for example, they're a great, great example. At the moment, they are fifth in terms of brand strength. But for the last 10 years and longer, they've maintained an over 90 brand strength rating. They're an extremely strong brand. And you get that sense even when you talk to a Liverpool fan. You know, they've got a huge, rich heritage and history and extremely passionate fans and high perceptions around the club. But that does not necessarily translate, as Brent alluded to, to a high brand value. Um, and I think these football clubs are extremely emotive. And, and Brent touched on it earlier. These fans get extremely emotionally connected to, to these brands as football clubs. Having said all that, there does come a, a point in time where, where you know, the, the results on the field matter substantially and to the fans they're not worried about the commercial viability of the club even though there's a link between commercial viability and the ability to buy world-class players and therefore win on the pitch you know they want to see Manchester United back on the top of the Premier League fighting for the Champions League every year um, but they are you know fans well especially domestically in the UK football fans are, are not fickle you know people do stick stick to their teams through thick and thin um, but it does poor performance on the field does have a huge effect on on the ability to earn revenue in the future, the ability to attract sponsors, ability to attract world class players. You know, particularly just maintaining your spot in the Champions League has has huge effects for for the club going forward. If I if I may just jump in in terms of the the brand strength or the brand strength index, it's one way of almost looking at it is always it's a lead indicator in terms of, you know, at a point in time, how strong this brand is in terms of equity compared to last year. It's almost a lead indicator as to where the, the club is going. And on the, the, the first point, it, well, it stands to reason, you know, it, Manchester United, I think the question was about. So if they were to become a sixth, seven, eighth ranked, hypothetically, and stay there for a pro prolonged period of time, then it stands to reason that, you know, both brand strength and their fundamentals would be impacted. 
Um, yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. So on-field performance, as Dex said, is related. They, you mm. know, they can't stay a top four um, by brand value if their performance yeah. isn't maintained. And, and it is all compounding. You know, the, the better you perform on the field, the more fans you attract, the more corporate sponsorships you attract, the more revenue you bring in, the greater ability you have to buy better players, the more you win on the field. So it's, it's all interrelated. You, you cited Liverpool there as, as an example of, of a club with a particularly strong equity and, and in my opinion as well, one of probably two or three of the best run clubs, clubs in the Premier League currently. As a holistic thing, I mean, Liverpool are very smart with their use of social media. They have an incredibly charismatic manager. They have very good recruitment. There's a lot of things going on there in their favour. Given that we're talking about huge commercial entities, things where on-field performance matters enormously to equity and value and all the rest of it, does it surprise you that some football clubs, not going to single out anybody in this particular element, although, you know, there are obvious examples that some football clubs are still so badly run in terms of the on-pitch side of stuff, in terms of recruitment, in terms of analysis, in terms of the strategy behind recruitment of managers, recruitment of players, when effectively, ultimately, that's your product. It's like Ferrari putting all of their money into marketing and trying to get sponsors for an F1 car, but forgetting how to actually make the thing that goes on the road. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, Club Springs and I won't uh, mention it, but I, yeah, I, I think there's there's two sides, and and those responsible for so for the off field sort of um, performance, whether it's sort of brand and marketing, you know, they don't have a direct um, influence on field, but the on field performance has to be has to be addressed. Um, you know, identifying you know what your team should look like, the style of play, the type of manager you want. Um, and being able to give him enough time to, you know, build his squad and, and retain the trust of his um, senior management. It seems like it's a business area where there's a marked absence of strategic thinking, unlike pretty much any comparable sector that has similar sorts of revenues involved. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, we're seeing different business models in, in the Premier League play out. Um, we're seeing this kind of um, bar to loan model um, with the hope of, you know, other clubs essentially building up your player for you to sell at, at a profit at a later date or, or you to cultivate that and, br- and bring that back in. But if these aren't managed properly, you know, we, we see transfer bans, for example, and that has huge impact on not only just on-field performance, but general perceptions in the public eye, general sponsorship perceptions. Um, you know, if you're breaking fair play laws or or kind of harvesting you know, young talent illicitly. Um, ultimately, that's not a, not a good good view for for on your brand image. Um, and yeah, the, in terms of you know the commerciality of, of running the business, it's it is kind of this this fine balancing act between it purely being run a, at a financial gain. And you know, Man United is a is a profitable club, and there aren't many profitable clubs in the world. Um, they are one of them, but the balance between running it at a profit and performing well on field is, is not being met at, at the moment. So it's this fine seesaw act between, you know, giving your shareholders a return, your owners of the club a return, but, but also having that on field performance to match. One final question from me, and this is much broader. Again, you m- might not be able to answer it, but if we are sort of forecasting to the years ahead, as far as business in football is concerned, growth is the thing that people are talking about all the time. 
every time there's a new Premier League TV deal, and we're seeing prices very inflated across Europe as well, there's always talk about bubbles and bursting. What do what do you guys think? Is that is that is it possible that European football could undergo something like that? Um, I think I think the one really interesting area is around um, broadcasting um, and the sort of shift away from sort of typical broadcasting um, media. Like we're already seeing it with um, Amazon um, jumping on board, and I think that's just going to increase. You know, we know um, people are consuming football in different ways. We know that in China, um, for instance, you know, the millennials there, they stream more than 50% um, online. So this has big implications for how football is consumed and how it's being broadcasted. That will have an impact on, you know, what people, you know, what these leagues can um, attract in terms of the broadcasting fees becomes more highly competitive. Um, And that has some implications on, you know, activation on sponsorship. So I think that's one Landscape, one part of the landscape that we'll see some really interesting, uh, really just really interesting change. Yeah, and I, th- I think a, another landscape is kind of the extension of these brands outside of football. You know, as they try and push commercial revenues and explore different ways of bringing money into the club. Esports, for example, is is kind of a massive growth area that all of these clubs are are looking to tap into. Some are tapping into already. The likes of Wolves, PSG, doing it extremely well. Um, but on the other side of the coin, it also represents a potential risk to to your brand equity. Um, you know, if, if you're kind of lending your brand to, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old Dota 2 players, for example, that you don't really have control over, um, that represents a risk to your brand equity and, and potential erosion and incidences around there. One final question from me, um, which does relate in part to what you were talking about with broadcasting. Given that there's a natural congruence between uh, brand strength, brand equity, those things will likely go up and up if, if teams are performing well. Also, in Europe's top five leagues, you've got PSG, you've got Barcelona and Real basically dominate La Liga, Juve's dominating Serie A, Man City could well dominate the Premier League, possibly with Liverpool for the next five years. Is it going to create a situation where actually that accelerating process where a small number of clubs get disproportionately stronger and stronger in relation to everyone else then actually cuts the bottom out of the broadcasting market because people get turned off because it's not really any longer a competition. Is is that something that clubs need to be aware of or rather governing bodies would need to be aware of? Yeah, no, um, completely. And I think Dex already alluded to it in terms of the parity or how the broadcasting um, fee is distributed in Premier League. Um, you know, it's a lot fairer than La Liga. So there are, they are, there are attempts to try and sort of manage that because, you know, one can't forget one of the big driving forces of Premier League is the excitement, you know. Within reason, a team a team can beat another team on a given day. So for sponsors, that's great because you get these great sort of buzz moments. They're not just it's not just sort of hanging around just at the top few clubs. So Premier League, they are taking steps because there is there is that danger. You leave everyone else behind, and it just the gap just widens. I think the other leagues, La Liga, for instance, could do a lot more. One area quite boring is tax, but you know I think there's a lot that sort of local um, or national governments can do. Um, potentially around um, tax and particularly the tax of 
and foreign players coming in. So we saw that with Italy recently, right? Italy, mm. just they've just relaxed some of their um, tax rules around that. And so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Will players be more attracted to um, Syria than Seems so already. I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? But I mean, we've seen, I mean, Ronaldo moved there. We Correct. don't know how, how, if there was any advance notice of anything like mm. that. Of course, Lukaku just moved there this summer as well. There does seem to be a kind of renewed interest, partly because of Juventus, but... Yeah, well, maybe. you know, they're never going to come out, are they, and, and say it's all about, you know, but my the sort agents of net tax. Know, right? But, you know, yeah, it, the proof's in the pudding and, yeah. and it remains to be seen. But, you know, is that a risk to La Liga? We'll, we'll, we'll see. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for coming in, guys. I really appreciate it. Can you hold the, hold the, the annual up again? And can you tell us where people can purchase the wonderful annual? I'll tell you what. I'll Why don't you do it, because... You're better at it than I am. Yeah, so um, you can either go to www.brandfinance.com, www.branddirectory.com, or um, there's a link on Amazon at the moment. If you just search for the Brand Finance Football Annual 2019 on Amazon, you'll you'll be able to find it there. And we'll pop a link in the description of the of the podcast That's as well. So if you're interested, you. thank you very um, much. It's a love. It's a lovely looking thing. Thank mm. you sit wonderfully on a coffee table wouldn't it yeah that's the idea yeah. Yeah. thanks for having us thanks so much thank guys and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon yeah yeah hopefully thanks this is an advert the TIFO football podcast is supported by The Athletic thank you The Athletic the best place to read about sports online whether it is Alex tell me what it is what, where, what's what? Well, we found something very easily, I would add. We found something uh, that you'd all already read on The Athletic recently yeah. that relates to what we were discussing in this episode in some way. Relates perfectly. Um, so there's an article here which was published on the 8th of August uh, by Andy Naylor. Uh, and it's about Brighton's £100 million uh, new sponsorship deal with Amex. Amex were the previous sponsors of Brighton. And the stadium is is named after Amex, but it it represents an enormous increase in the arrangement between Amex, who have corporate offices in Brighton, and that's where that arrangement with the club comes from. Mm. And it's probably the largest or one of the largest ever outside the top six in terms of a commercial sponsorship arrangement. And I think one of the things that's really interesting that pertains to, I mean, there's loads and loads of detail in the article, and I won't bother thrashing through it because people can go and read it but 8p a day 8p a day uh <laughs> because the um you know what we've been talking about it with uh with Bryn and Declan is you know the the idea of the equity of a club its emotional resonance its connection how attractive it is and how that relates to sponsorship and financial concerns and Brighton is one of those clubs that I think has a really kind of positive sense around it you know the hiring of Graham Potter and you know we saw an opening season performance against Watford that was really impressive um you know that this this is a club who seems to be very well run seems to be on the up is producing a particular style of football it's also interesting to note that Chris Hewton who obviously did a huge amount for the club but was maybe associated with quite a defensive style has been replaced by somebody who's more progressive and more attractive in terms of their football (laughs) rather than anything else um, and maybe that's, again, part of what incentivizes brands to get involved with clubs is how they're perceived, but also the way they play football. So it's a really good article. Um, it's exactly the sort of stuff that you get, you know, kind of peering behind the curtain and addressing things that, that happen around a football club and, and what makes them tick and so on that, that the athletic has time to do, which, you know, maybe you don't get elsewhere. Yeah. 
Well, whether it's that, dedicated local reporting about your team, or rich storytelling from around the world. You'll find it all in one place. That's The Athletic. And you can get a 30-day free trial if you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And if you sign up before the end of August, you get 50% off an annual subscription, which is where our jive about the 8p a day thing comes from. Uh, But it really is worth doing. I know we've talked about it in previous episodes, but it really, really is worth doing. The stable of writers that they have over there is incredible. And uh, I find myself... And I don't want to associate. Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to associate at all the athletic with my toilet. But goodness gracious me, I'm spending more time on the toilet in the last couple of weeks than I, I was doing in, in the, the, the previous weeks because of how much time I'm reading the athletic. But anyway, that's uh, yeah. Thanks, thanks, guys. Uh, that's uh, the athletic. forward slash tifo fifty percent off. And 30-day free trial. Uh, that was interesting, wasn't it? That was very interesting. Yeah, I'm yeah. delighted that Declan and Bryn came in. We, as we mentioned in, in the podcast, we have made a video with them before um, uh, about Real Madrid and how they took over at the top spot of both of those different league tables. The thing I found the most interesting about it, uh, which I wasn't expecting, didn't know this, was that uh, fans from emerging markets are looking at the style of play when they come to choose who to follow as a secondary club. I think they were saying not so much as a primary club, local clubs tend to be primary clubs, still secondary clubs, one of the sort of top European clubs. That's news to me. I mean, I, I said, I said in the episode, I remember uh, George best being the reason that people were so attracted to Manchester United, but the idea that style of play, mm. I think, I mean, intuitively it makes sense. Um, but I guess, you know, we, we kind of live in a, a little bubble here where, Obviously, the attention that media plays to certain types of clubs and uh, and how they play football is is conveyed in a certain sort of way. But if you're if you're a fan in you know in the Far East or in Africa or in the US, looking to associate yourself with a club, then I guess it does make sense. You know, recent recent success might be a factor, um, but. It, it may be that without kind of necessarily emotional resonance, particularly involved in something, then either a favourite player or a particular style of play is something that you want to be associated with. And I, I think it's why, for example, Liverpool are in such a great position, particularly in the US market. They have US owners, they've won the Champions League, they have some really charismatic and interesting players and a manager. But they also play a really attractive style of football. And you can see all of those things kind of coalescing into making them a really, really attractive proposition for people outside of the UK to get behind and, and support and take an interest in. We talked about the idea outside of trying to trying to work out the correlation between new fans of new clubs and of the style of play or attacking play. There's a... Uh, there's a bit of an issue, isn't there? Because we would associate attacking play with the bigger clubs because they have all the best players and, of course, they play that way. That makes sense, right? But if you were to cut the top off, if you were to get rid of all of the big, you know, the big teams from every, all of the top... You're literally leagues, explaining what I want to go off and do myself <laughs> to listeners so they can maybe go and do it themselves. They're not going to... Look, no wanna... one has the time to do this other than you. Right. All right, but OK. That, well, you, could work, you could work that out, couldn't you? Yeah, I think you probably could. I think uh, you'd wait it, or you wouldn't wait it for leagues. You'd compare league by league. 
Um, and you'd probably want to look at the brand value or equity of the club the following season to see if there's some sort of correlation between how a team performed in terms of attacking output. It may be to do with speed of play. It may be to do with uh, just the number of chances that are generated. I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a really interesting one. But I think yeah. if you looked at, um, although you know, again, as a, as a countermeasure, um, Bryn made the the point, or, or Declan made the point in in the podcast that someone like Burnley who is associated with a certain set of values in a certain region and, you know, being the underdog, being very resolute, being very stalwart, that that attracts its own set of sponsors and, and maybe well, would attract its own set of fans in a similar kind of way. There, are, I mean, the reason I get interested in certain football clubs is, is partly because of how they run their recruitment department. So, mm. we, you know, we've all got different I bet itches your market to scratch. size is huge. Mine, uh, no. That's the other thing I found interesting was... Uh, and we, obviously we talked a lot about Manchester United, which I know, you know, I know, but they are the perfect example at the current time, as they are of so many things, irritatingly for people who have to record podcasts and talk generally, but use specific clubs to make a point. It's nearly always Man United because they are either really good or really bad in all of these, in all of these things. But, uh, and we sort of continue this conversation a bit after, um, after we turned the microphones off with Brennan Declan, but I quite, I'm really interested in the idea as to whether or not Edward Wood knows to the extent that these two guys know that having Oli Solskjaer as your manager is actually really good for those things, as you said, that kind of, he has a character, he's associated with a time at the club that was uh, very, very popular, he's associated with a particular style of play, he was a striker, he scored loads of goals, Yeah, everyone loves him, it's difficult not to love him. Well, if you, if you look at books about Does branding, he know? If, if you look at books about branding and, and how to build a brand obviously it's not just a name and a logo and a product it's also a set of values uh, you know a, a promise that you're making to the consumer all of these slightly wanky nebulous things that people talk about in branding books because they are often a bit like that but i think somebody as commercially as astute as ed woodward would absolutely see the the kind of the potential promise of a solskjaer figure as opposed to, say, a Mourinho figure, of an association with dynamism, with youth, all of those things. And, and what you then start to think about is, for example, the recruitment policy. How much of the recruitment policy... And, and, and it's funny because we often when we talk about recruitment policy in terms of, say, like holding on to a Paul Pogba, you know, that's Paul Pogba has an enormously strong and positive brand association as an individual, huge number of Instagram followers, incredibly likable and charismatic guy. Um, some of these other signings, Dan James and Aaron Wambasaka, yes, they're capable footballers, but is it that sense of building a brand again as the young British side, you know, mm. that, that there's a that that there are football decisions that aren't just made for football reasons and you know that almost almost in the back of his mind Ed Woodward has that thing that you and I talked about in a shop the other day of you know you don't win anything with kids yeah well the last time that was talked about was with Ferguson and they did win stuff and, yeah. and maybe there's this kind of nagging thing of maybe that's how we re-establish ourselves as a credible footballing presence not just a commercial right. presence so, and so trying to get those two things aligned is, yeah is, is really really tricky difficult yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but it's a fascinating topic, and I think it's mm. one of those things where, you know, 
part of what we seek to do on TIFO is to show how all of the things that are external to what actually just goes on on the pitch are incredibly important to how clubs run or the perception of football generally or the relationship between clubs and fans, whatever it is. It's um, a symbiotic relationship well, in a capitalist world. In a very capitalist world, yeah. Um, mm. But, but there's, a, there's a lot to unpack uh, in that. We should get them back next year. Yeah. And talk about the changes in the league tables. Yeah, because there's there's even things that we didn't talk about, like PSG, for example. PSG's yeah. moving into fashion as a thing. Um, Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What Collaborations they with... They did a collaboration with... Um, with fashioners? With, yeah, with fashion... Fashioning We're people. getting quite close to saying fascists, aren't we? Yeah. We shouldn't say that. Also, we should look at things like what what positive brand equity does Hector Bellerin bring to Arsenal? Well, Bellerin... For a star, but also I would imagine absolutely loads. Yeah, my sister is doing a big banner of illustrated footballers for a pub nearby. Right, that's the old Red Lion Theatre. You should go and watch the football there. It's great. Is that where we're having the quiz, Joe? Oh yeah, the quiz is sold out. I forgot to say the quiz. Anyway, I'll get onto that. Okay, but um, and I she asked for me asked me because she doesn't know much about football. She asked me for players from each team. Mm. I was trying to think of young players that won't maybe leave or or retire. I was going to say die. Won't retire. Uh, in the next five years, so she doesn't need to update the banner. But I chose Hector Bayerin mm. because that guy is cool, good-looking, great hair, yeah, young. Yeah, I want to hang out with that guy. I, yeah. Actually, I don't. I want to hang out in the same place as that guy and look at him from across the room. Yeah. But the pub quiz is sold out, by the way. Sorry about that. I didn't think it would sell out so quickly, but it did <laughs> because there were limited tickets available. And uh, you know, but lovely. Thanks to everyone who's bought a ticket. Um, only one person tweeted me saying they were a straggler, so we'll attach you to uh, you know a weak team. We'll sniff out the weak teams, and we'll attach you, or we'll move you around every round. We won't do that. Um, but uh, there might be a few more tickets available in a couple of weeks' time. In ca- you know if people drop out or, or like, incidentally, and I will be repeating this: if you have purchased a ticket but you think you aren't going to be able to make it at some point between now and then. Please, please, please tell me because there's a limited number of seats anyway and we really want it to be full and uh, there's a waiting list of people already. So if you can't make it and you know you can't, do uh, send me a tweet or, or something and let me know um, in, with your name and uh, we can we can rectify this situation, maybe put you on the list for the next one. Um, but yeah, thanks so much to everyone for, uh, for coming along to that and thanks for listening to today's podcast. Uh, we have a special episode going out later this week with a person who we won't announce now just in case the recording doesn't happen Um, (laughs) but we're very excited about it it's gonna be cool um and more stuff coming up so stay tuned that doesn't work does it because you're getting good at not a radio station stay waiting by your mobile device by your rss feed yeah that's that's right yeah (laughs) keep swimming down the stream of our rss feed and uh, you will inevitably come into contact with top quality content uh anyway thanks for listening and uh, we will uh, see you again in a few days or next week if the thing doesn't happen but it probably will but it might not so don't be confident about that but do look out for it friday maybe See ya!